We'll take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to James chapter 4. It's going to take me a little bit to get there, but we will get there to James chapter 4. If you're visiting today, this is a bit of a different season. I'm normally walking through books of the Bible, but in this season, we're trying to understand the presence of God. Last week, if you missed that sermon, we went from Genesis to Revelation and tried to understand how God's presence works and moves in our lives. It was about 10 years ago in which I had a, uh, I would say, pretty massive shift in my philosophy of ministry. As, as a pastor, it's obviously important for me to have a philosophy of ministry. What do I believe ministry is about and, and how do we function as a church? And a lot of what I had built up as my philosophy was, was crumbled a few years ago. It was a small change in my thinking that just had massive implications. And, and not just in my church, but in my own life and in my prayer life, in my family and in my leadership. All hinged on kind of the one thing that God began to show me. Up until that point, my primary ambition as a pastor had been to attract as many people to church as I possibly could. That's, that's all I wanted. I wanted to attract as many people to church as I could. That was the one driving goal. And when your driving goal is to attract as many people to church as you can, you will normally do a lot of dumb things. You will try to change everything on Sunday morning to attract certain people and one thing doesn't work, you'll go to the next thing and then that doesn't work and you'll go to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and you're not content with the basic things God has called. You'll try to make everything a little bit more creative. You will spend a lot of money on advertising and flyers. And then when one flyer doesn't work, you'll change it to a different flyer. And then when you get a flyer in the mail from one church, you'll say, well, I've got to combat that with another flyer. And then you just keep going with these things. And I'm telling you the early in my ministry, that's what I was doing. And I was exhausting myself. I was exhausting my staff. I was exhausting the church. And it just felt like things kept transitioning because we couldn't figure out how to attract more people. Now, before I say the next thing, I want you to hear this first. We are a great commission people. The second word of our mission statement is people. Our mission is to lead people. Say people with me. Say it again. People. We are, we are, we are all about people. Like we, we want people to come to know Jesus Christ. The great commission is to go make disciples. And we are not going to be satisfied until every man, woman, and boy and girl in this community hears the gospel and has an opportunity to respond. Amen? We should grieve over every empty seat in this room because it could be filled by someone who needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are going to be passionate about people. We love people people and our calling in many ways is about seeing people come to know the Lord. But God began to transition my primary pursuit. Instead of my primary pursuit being to attract people, my primary pursuit began to be attracting the presence of God. That's a subtle but very important shift. Because if my primary aim as a pastor is to attract the most people as I can, then I'm going to constantly be changing things and doing things and finding all kinds of pragmatic methods to get people into church. If my primary aim is to attract the presence of God, I'm going to do things like pray and fast and seek the Lord. And everything began to change in my life when I decided that the great aim of my life was not to get people to come to church, but to get the presence of God to come to church. Now, you might be saying, well, isn't, isn't God always at church? 
Like God's everywhere. How could God not come to church? I mean, is it actually possible for us to be here and God not come to church? I would say it's absolutely possible and it happens all the time. I could give you a lot of verses for that, but let me give you one. Revelation 3.20. I told you a few weeks ago, one of my fears, cautions, I think, in a positive way, a positive fear, is that we could become the church of Laodicea. And the reason is, is because we have... Um, a lot of wealth, we're in a community that's prospering and we could, like them, get to the place where we don't think we need God because we can take care of everything ourselves. And we live in that box of self-reliance to which we can keep going and going as a church and feel like we're fine, but all of a sudden realize that we haven't depended on God nor asked God for anything. And I fear that we could be that way. And so the Lord confronts that church for their lukewarmness and for the fact that they are moving as if they don't need God. And then at the end of that, in Revelation 3.20, it says this, Behold, Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and answers, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. Now, I grew up thinking that that verse was meant for evangelism. We say to lost people, Jesus is standing at your door and knocking. And if you'll answer, he'll come in. But that's not the context. The context is the church of Laodicea. He's saying to the church, I'm standing at the door knocking. Well, you know what that means? You know who's not in the church of Laodicea? Jesus. They're there. And they're doing all the things that you do at church. But Jesus is on the outside saying, I'd love to come in there with you if you'll hear my voice and you'll let me in. It is very possible to have church without the presence of God. It is very possible together without the presence of God. And so I would say the win for us is not to have a lot of people, but to have people who encounter God so if next Sunday, 3,000 people show up at church and the cars are lined all the way down 78 so that people can't even drive and there's people everywhere and they're sitting here at the front and in the middle of my sermon, they, they sense I'm about to close and they say, more preaching, Pastor Josh. And it's just, people are here and, and uh, I mean, that happens a lot, but there's people here and, and the place is full. We might have a tendency to say, Pastor, that was a great Sunday. Well, I would say, well, well maybe... It wasn't a great Sunday because people were here, but if the people that came here felt convicted of their sin and they begin to mourn because of their sin and people got saved and their lives changed and they begin to turn around and, and the presence of God was here, that's a good Sunday. It's a good Sunday when God moves in the hearts and lives of people. And my whole shift in thinking to a, what I would say, a more presence-centered church as opposed to a people-centered church began with a re-understanding or a new understanding of the presence of God. And the fact is, if we don't have this understanding of the presence of God, nothing about our vision as a church matters. Because our vision is to be the visible presence of Jesus in our community. To be a people passionate about experiencing, enjoying, and expanding his presence to every neighbor and every nation. But if we don't understand the presence of God correctly, that doesn't make any sense. And what began to switch in my mind is understanding the difference, listen to me, between the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God. Those are two very distinct things between the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God. I remember in seminary 
gathering with some people to pray before a Sunday morning service. And um, I heard someone pray, Lord, we just ask that you would be here this morning. Lord, just be with us and be present with us. In my mind, I was thinking, you really don't need to pray that. God's everywhere and he's here and you don't have to like invite him to be present. He's everywhere. I was one of those cynical, smart aleck first year seminary students. But he was keyed into something that I didn't yet understand which is there is such thing as a dead church and an alive church. And the difference between a dead church and a live church is not that the music is exciting and the preaching is exciting. It's that God is at one and God is not at the other. A dead church is a church where God has not showed up. And a live church is a church and where the very presence of God has made the music and the preaching alive in the hearts of people. And as a result, God is moving and stirring. And that's what he was praying. I never thought about that before. And this understanding not only revolutionized my ministry, but really my own prayer life and my family. And what I believe is going to happen this morning is not a change maybe in the way you think about the church, but in the way you think about your own life and what you want to see happen in your life and in your family and in everything God is doing around you. The omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God. Well, let's think first about the omnipresence of God. Write that down. The omnipresence of God. O-M-N-I. Omnipresence. The word omni means all. So we see, I say omniscient, the Lord is all-knowing. Omnipotent, the God is all-powerful. Omnipresence means that God is present everywhere at, at all times. There's a couple of key verses for this. One would be Psalm 139, 7 through 12. Write that down, Psalm 139, 7 through 12. Here's what that says. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Uh, even in the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. Some of you were here a couple of months ago and we studied the life of Jonah and we looked at the fact that Jonah tried to run from the presence of the Lord. and It was foolish because everywhere he went, God was always there and he could not run the presence of God. And that's because God is everywhere at all times. Another important verse for that is Jeremiah 23, 24. Jeremiah 23, 24, it says this, can a man hide himself in secret places so I cannot see him? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, says the Lord? You cannot hide from the presence of God. God is all times at all places and everywhere at the same time. It's so interesting, just in the, in the providence of God, our, our son Josiah is reading this book. It's really basically a children's catechism. It's telling little truths and then asking questions and answering them. And this week's was on the presence of God. And so he, he said to me, this just happened this week. He said to me, Dad, so does this mean that God divides himself and then he puts some of himself here and some of himself over there and so he's divided in all these places? And I said, no, that's some kind of heresy. I don't know what it is, but that's not, that's not true. And I said, son, let me explain it to you. And I began to explain it to him and every time something came out, I was saying another heresy. I, I, I knew it was something. And all of a sudden I looked at him and said, buddy, I don't know. I don't understand. All I know is this, God's everywhere, all right? And he's like, okay, that's good. Like, I don't know. <laughs> like, I got no answer for that. And every time I try to come up with something, I'm going down some path I don't want to go down. But the reality is, is you cannot run the presence of God. He is everywhere at all times. You cannot hide from his presence. But there has to be more than that. If the omnipresence of God is the only thing there is, 
then what did Adam and Eve lose when they were exiled from the garden? Because when they got outside of the garden, they were still in the omnipresence of God, right? God was still there. But something was lost. There was something that died inside of them. There was something that mourned inside of them. They had lost something about the presence of God. If that's all that there is, then why would there be a need for a temple or a tabernacle where the presence of God would dwell? If the presence of God is dwelling everywhere, why do they need a place that would travel with them or a place that they would build where the very presence of God would be? If, if all of the earth is where his presence is, there has to be something more. Why would David constantly long for the presence of God if all there was was the omnipresence of God? Why would you have a verse like Matthew 18, 20, which says this, if two or three are gathered together in my name, there I will be in their midst. If all there was was the omnipresence of God, why would there be this promise that when we're gathered in the name of Jesus, God would be there if God is already there? The truth is there, there has to be something more than the omnipresence of God or there's just a ton of stuff in scripture that makes no sense whatsoever. And what it is, is the manifest presence of God. The manifest presence presence of God. Now, I will say, when you come to things like this, there's always a limit to how we can communicate with language. And I'm not positive the manifest presence is the best word. It's a very often used word. Um, I think it, it has some faults, but we're going to use it because it's, it's the best one we have, the manifest presence. But there's some synonyms that I think will help you. We can call it the felt presence of God. F-E-L-T, the felt presence of God. You could call it the known presence of God, meaning you know when it's there and you know when it's not there. You could call it the personal presence of God or the relational presence of God. So it is something real. It is something personal. It is something that some experience and others don't experience. It is something that is known and that is felt. That's what we mean by the manifest presence of God. Now think about this. The omnipresence of God is not necessarily felt or known. Every Buddhist and every Muslim and every Hindu and every atheist this morning is under the omnipresence of God. All of them. Even if they don't know it, even if they're not aware of it, they're living under the omnipresence of God. And there is no more or no less of the omnipresence. God is not more omnipresent today than he was yesterday or less God is always the same in his omnipresence, but that is not true of the manifest presence. If the manifest presence come, you know it. And there are times in which there is more of God's manifest presence than there is at other times. A.W. Tozer says it this way, listen. He says, the presence and the manifestation of God's presence are not the same. There can be one without the other. God is here when we are wholly unaware of it. Right? Before you even knew the Lord, God was everywhere. And you can be unaware of it. He is manifest only when and as we are aware of his presence. See, what Adam and Eve lost was something real. We talked about that last week. They, they lost something real. They lost the, the intimate, felt personal, relational, known presence of God. And even though when we went out of the garden, God was still there, they felt as if something died inside of them. And what had died inside of them is the very presence of God in them. They felt as if they were dead because they were missing 
the felt manifest presence of God. And what we're seeking is not the omnipresence. We don't have to seek the omnipresence. We're seeking the felt presence. We're seeking the, the known presence of God. That's what our heart longs for. And God wants us to seek it. And God wants us to know it. And if we have this cynical attitude, well, God's omnipresent and there's no more or less, then we will never obey a ton of the commands in Scripture to seek the presence of God. Psalm 105.4. Psalm 105.4 says this. Seek his presence continually. There has to be something more. Seek his presence continually. I want to read one for you that I think is super helpful. I could read a hundred scriptures here, but Psalm 27 is a great one. Psalm 27, verses 4 through 10. It says this. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. You know what David is longing for? The presence of God. He can step out of the temple and God's omnipresence there, but he wants to be in the temple experiencing the presence of God in a different way. All I want to do is be there in your presence. I don't want to miss your presence, Lord. And so he says, I just want to be there all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high up on a rock. Verse 6, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. But here's the key, Psalm 27, 7 and 8. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Lord, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Here's what he's saying. Father, don't cast me away from your presence. It is impossible to be cast away from the omnipresence of God. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was not forsaken by the omnipresence of God. But something was lost in that moment when the father turned his face away from the son. There was something that was lost. And often the translations will take that verse that says, seek my face. And it will actually translate it, seek my presence. Some of your translations may see that. Because that's what it means. To seek the face of God is to seek the presence of God. God, I want your face. I want your presence. I want to know you. And I want to be seen by you. And I want to see you. I want more of you. And you may have not been able to theologically articulate what it means. But if you're a believer, at some point in your life, you have longed for something more than the omnipresence of God. You have wanted God to be near to you. You have wanted God to speak to you. You have wanted God to give you direction. You have wanted God to give you revelation. You have wanted God to comfort you. You have wanted God to help you. That's a longing for the manifest presence of God. Something different. I think one of the ways that we know this is real is in the name that God has given himself. In Exodus chapter 3, God meets Moses at the burning bush. And he says, Moses, here's what I want to do with you. I want you to lead my people out of Egypt and lead them to the promised land. And Moses says, well, who am I going to tell them sent me? And at that moment, the Lord gave Moses a new name. It was the name Yahweh. It is a name that meant the personal God. Not a distant God, but a near God. Not an impersonal God, but a personal God. And what God was saying at that moment is this, is that my people, the people Israel, are going to have something of my presence that the rest of the world is not going to have. 
And every step they take along the way, it is the presence of God guiding them. And when they need water out of the rock, it's the presence of God. When they need manna, it's the presence of God. When they need leadership in the day and in the night, it's the presence of God. And that presence is distinct upon his people in a way that nobody else experiences. They're experiencing more of God's presence to the extent that in Exodus 33... After the people's rebellion and disobedience, the Lord said to Moses, I'll send you into the promised land, but my presence will not go with you. To which it says, this was a disastrous word to the people of God. And Moses said, we will not go if your presence doesn't go. If there's only the omnipresence, what was the big deal that his presence wouldn't go? Because it was going to be everywhere. What he was saying is, I'm going to withhold from you my personal and known and felt presence And it says that was a disastrous word to the people. And so what God did is he said, I want you to know me as Yahweh. I am the the personal God. The best explanation I've ever heard of that is I heard someone say once that if God were to give you a business card on the front of the card in all type letters, it would say Elohim, creator of heaven and earth. That's God. Elohim, creator of heaven and earth. And it would come in that voice. Heir of heaven and earth. And then Imagine this, that before God handed you his card, he took it and he turned it over. He took a pen and on the back he wrote Yahweh and put his number. You see, God is Elohim to everyone. He is God of heaven and earth to everyone, but he is Yahweh to his people. There is something unique about his relationship with his people. And what he's saying is that once we come to know Jesus Christ, there is an experience of his presence that we can have that no one else can have but those who have come to him through Jesus Christ. That is unique and different. And it is that that God wants us to know. And it is that that God wants us to pursue. Now, we might have a tendency to think that the manifest presence of God is only in big things. I've heard this before. And certainly the manifest presence was there when uh, Moses saw the burning bush. And it was there when Elijah called down fire from heaven. And in John chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine. And it says, at that moment, Jesus manifested his glory. He made himself known through that miracle. It happened at Pentecost when fire came down from heaven. So that's all, that's all the manifestation of the presence of God. But it's not just the big things. 1 Corinthians 12 says that when we walk in our spiritual gifts, it's a manifestation of the presence. And so when you're filled with the spirit of God and you're functioning in your gifts, whatever those may be, then what is happening is people are seeing the presence of God through you and you're experiencing the presence of God in you. And 1 Corinthians 14 says, seek the manifestation of the Spirit. Now, right here, most pastors would tell you 15 things that doesn't mean. Well, don't say that. I'm not going to do that because it means something. And at the very least, it means that we should seek that through our lives in the context of the church, the very presence of God be manifested through us. That's what it means. It's not just the big thing. You ever had a God moment? I was at a flag football game on Monday night and someone said to me, I got to tell you a God moment. And they, they told me that a God moment. Have you ever had a prayer answered? Have you ever been given clear direction from the Lord? Has the Lord ever encouraged your heart? Has the Lord ever brought someone into your life that did something significant? Have you ever seen God provide for you in a supernatural way? Have you ever stood on a promise of God and saw him come through? That is the manifest presence of God. That's God being real. That's God being known. And that's God being felt. And let me just tell you something. I just want to come out and say this to you this morning. And if if this is a big problem for us, then you can have me go someplace else. But everything I want for us as a church is that. 
What the next generation needs from us is not a God distant, but a God near. The next generation needs to know there is a God that is real and that is felt and can be experienced and known. That's what we're about as a church. That's all we see. That's all we want. And we are not going to be satisfied with anything less than all that God has for us as a church. And I don't even know the fullness of what that means. All I know is this. We want everything that God has and we want God to be known and seen through the lives of the people of this church. It is the manifest presence of God. Now that was the introduction to my sermon. That's kind of a joke. Turn to James 4. Time to turn to James 4. If some of you are going to that lunch after church, well, I have to lead it, so don't worry, you're not going to be late. I really, honestly, in just a few minutes, I really, I really prayed through this. What is one verse I could give you that would be the most clear in your mind as you walk away to see what this means for you and for our church? And it's James 4.8. James 4.8 says this. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, I'm gonna read the broader context in a moment, but let's just, let's just stay with that statement in James 4 eight. I think this really may be the most important practical way to see this. There is a promise and a command. The promise is, I'll draw near to you, but the command is, you draw near to me. Let's start with the promise. There's a promise here that God will draw near to you. If all there is is the omnipresence of God, how is God gonna draw near to you? How's he gonna draw near to you? There's more. And that word draw near means to come close. It means to take steps toward. It means to turn your face. You know that Psalm 67 we pray a lot? God be gracious to us and bless us and cause your face to shine upon us. You know what that's a longing for? That's a longing for the presence of God. God, turn your face towards us and look at us. We want your presence among us. We talked about face as a symbol of presence in Psalm 27. And that's what that means, is that God would turn to us and that we would know him and experience him. And so it's saying here that God will take step towards us and God will come close to us, which by the way, that also means that it's possible for God to be nearer at times than at other times, right? That has to be true. <laughs> if, if it didn't mean that, then why would we ever want to draw near to God if he was always near in the same amount? What that means is this, and this is really good news. It is possible for you to know more of God. It is possible for you to experience more of his presence. It is possible to know him in a more intimate way. That is the promise here, that you could have more of his presence. Now listen to this. This is Ephesians 1. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. All right, you are sealed. That is the guarantee of your inheritance when Jesus returns. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's how you know that you're a child of God. But the degree to which you are filled... And the experience of that varies from time to time. You can quench the spirit of God, right? You can grieve the spirit of God. You can resist the spirit of God. So it is possible at times to be filled up to the fullness of the spirit of God. Ephesians 3.19, that's the goal, filled up to the fullness. But there's times in which we have so grieved and quenched the spirit that there's very little of the spirit's sense in our life. And so we're not experiencing the manifest presence of God. Why? Because there is some wall that has been built up in our lives that is keeping us from this. And so there's this, this invitation. 
says, do you want more of me? Do you want more of the abundant life that's only in me? That was last week's message that God created us for this. And so here's this invitation. Well, then draw near to me. You move closer and you take a step towards me and you turn your face towards me, the Lord says to us. And as you take step towards me, then I will take steps towards you. The Bible says this over and over. Jeremiah 29, 13 and 14 says, if you seek me, you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. So what that means is there are some who seek the Lord more that experience more of the Lord. It says in Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near to the Lord by the blood of Jesus Christ, which means it is only by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have the ability to draw near. But now that Jesus has died and made a way for us to draw near, we must now continually draw near to the Lord day by day, moment by moment. And as we draw near to the Lord, he draws near to us. There's something in some of you that might say, well, that just seems really man-centered. Like all of this depends upon us. Like if God is somehow just waiting on us. Well, let me say two things to that. The first one is this. The only reason you have any desire for God whatsoever is because God put it there. God is always the first mover. He is always the first pursuer. You can just write down John 6 and read the whole chapter. It comes up like three times in there. God is always moving us. Ephesians 2, we are dead in trespasses. You don't even have a spiritual heartbeat. So if you have a spiritual heartbeat, it's because God gave it to you. And if you have any desire for the things of God, that means God is already after you, okay? But the second thing I would say is Revelation 3.20 is still true. That God does long to come and to eat with us and to meet with us and to spend time with us. And yet it is possible for us to not hear his voice and to not open the door and not let him come in. It is possible for God to be outside of our hearts and outside of the church longing to meet. And yet God in some way, some mysterious way that is hard for me to imagine, has chosen to put himself on this side of the door and to do this. And to say, I'll come in, but you have to open the door. In some way, that's, that's true. I think maybe the best picture of this is the story of the prodigal son. If you're with me, say amen. Listen to this. This is a beautiful picture of, of what God is saying here. So here's the prodigal son who has left his father and he has shamed his father and he believed that there is some life better than his father's house. And so he runs and he loses everything and God got his attention and he's sitting here in a pigsty and he's lost everything and he starts to remember how good it was in the father's house and it was better there and everything he needed was there and he didn't have to worry about anything there and there was joy there and he wanted to come home. What he didn't realize is the father was anxiously awaiting his return and the father was looking for him to come back. But in order for him to make his way home and to be right with the father, then he had to get up and to humble himself and, and move towards the father. So he had to do that. There had been a wall that had been put up between he and his father. It was a wall of the son's sin and the son's pride and the son's arrogance and the son's immorality. And in order for the son to get back to the father, he had to humble himself and take down that wall and then come to the father. But here's the most amazing part. Think about the story. So the son starts to make these slow steps back towards the father. He humbles himself. So I just want to be a servant, anything, just to get back in your house. And when the father sees him, the father picks up his robe and runs as fast as he can and embraces him and gives him everything. That's draw near to me and I will draw near to you. 
It is as you begin to feel a desire for the Lord and more of the Lord, then you take your little steps towards the Lord. You break down the dividing wall of all the sin and immorality that's kept you from his presence. And as you make steps towards him, little bitty steps, what you will realize is that what is happening is in your little steps, God the Father is running as fast as he can to you to give you everything. And that's exactly the context that surrounds the James 4, 8 passage. Look at this, starting in James 4, 6. It says, therefore, it says, James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. What it means is that the way in which we draw near to the Lord is that we take all of the things that have quenched the Spirit of God and grieved the Spirit of God and our lack of obedience and our sexual immorality and our anger and our resentment and our bitterness and our hatred and our, all of the things that have built up a wall because we build up these walls between us and the Lord. And we humble ourselves. We say, Lord, I don't want those walls there anymore. I want to come back to you. And as we make that step to humble ourselves before the Lord and take down those walls through confessing our sins to the Lord, what happens is as we take those steps, the Lord comes to us and we experience the manifest presence of God as he embraces us. So many times we are kept in our sin because of shame or whatever it is when the reality is the Father is simply saying, if you'll just draw near to me, I will draw near to you. You know, some people ask me sometimes, why, why do we have an invitation at the end of our service? I went to a church recently and um, the pastor got done preaching. He said, amen. And I stood up to sing and it was done. We were done. Lights went up and everybody's leaving. Just amen. We're gone. There's a reason we do this. It's because we really believe that when the word of God is spoken, there needs to be a response. James says, don't be hearers of the word, but doers of the word in James 1. And when God is stirring, he is asking us to respond now. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice. And people will say to me sometimes, Pastor Josh, I feel so bad for you. You're up there and a lot of people aren't coming forward. And I know you're embarrassed. And let me just tell you something. In the integrity of my heart before God, right? I'm not embarrassed. I'm not, I'm not bothered. But I am, I am grieved at times. Not because I'm standing up here being vulnerable and as somehow knock on me or my preaching that people aren't coming forward. That's not it. It just grieves me that there may be some walls of spiritual pride left in our church that are keeping us from experiencing God. So if, if you stay in your seat because you don't need to talk to someone or pray or seek guidance, or harm, that's fine. But if you're there because of pride, then that's hindering the work of God. That's a wall that's up. And God will never draw near to us if there's walls of pride there. That's what grieves my heart. That there might be left in this church some religious pride that keeps us from experiencing the fullness of God. What I want to say to you is this. All I'm asking for you to do is to continue to take steps of drawing near to God and allow him to manifest himself to you as he comes near to you. And I want you to do it today. And I want you to do it tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day over and over and over and over again. You draw near to the Lord. You confess your sins. You take down the walls and you see him run towards you and embrace you and manifest himself to you. That's what God wants for you and nothing less than that. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.